What'd you do? Home here or home home? Home. Was that a sad look? <clears throat> That's really. Um, I can hear it. Are you on antibiotics? Are they working? I got to the health center today. Oh. <laughs> so in other words, you really shouldn't be here. Um, can I have a sip of your water? <laughs> then I can uh, have a good excuse to continue. I can't. So you really came back? I mean, with strep throat, shouldn't you? Do you have a fever? Okay. Well, I hope you feel better. Um, are we ready for an answer for install quiz? <laughs> would you like one? <laughs> We're ready. So some of you would, would like one but aren't ready, and some of you are ready but wouldn't like one. All right, well, um, did you all finish it? So what's not to be ready? You're, you're looking, um, no, no, you're, yeah, go ahead. Um, which would mean like half, roughly speaking. I'm just saying roughly speaking. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he has a lot of feelings. What? He has a lot of feelings. Astrophile? You think? <laughs> um, okay. Are you are you guys are as you read through Astrophile and Stella uh, over break and everything um, for the Monday after break, which would be February 27th. Um, ask yourself what you're thinking and whether you're liking it. Are you liking it as you read through it? Um, the songs. You don't like the songs? <laughs> they're just, they're too much. Not too much. <laughs> oh my god. I'm going to law school. Um, why are they too much? I guess... I mean now that you see that we're basically in agreement except for some slight <laughs> divergence of views here. I think that it's okay. I think there are already, there are already too many sonnets. <laughs> like once you get to the songs, it's I feel like he's stretching almost. There were some really great lines, mm -hmm. but I think overall, the songs almost talk about how much he doesn't really care about her. It, it, it seems like it's too much. It's more, he's more in love with love than with Stella because, I don't know. Huh. Do other people agree? <laughs> Gabriel's going to agree. Okay, go for it. Um, when, when I was doing the dishonest that Astrophil or Sydney described Stella, and the description I can believe and I felt and I understood what you're saying about it, but when I get to the song, songs, it may have been like three hours later after I was sick of the sonnets. <laughs> but the song was like, okay, you already expressed this, I can find the sonnet that already relates to this one. I should read one or the other. You kind of wrote too much. Don't do anyways. <laughs> um. I feel like it's overwrought, but the whole point of this poem is that it's overwrought. It's about the entire arc of an up and down relationship. And so, of course, there's going to be, like, backtracking and redundancy and, like, dude, just get a hold of yourself. Like, it's really kind of, like, sad, but just the way that, like, he just keeps, he's obsessing and obsessing and obsessing. He's like, God, she's such a bitch for being so awesome. You know, like, <laughs> but it's not a real relationship. Exactly. 
Like, it's and he has to write a poem because he's ra- he'd rather talk about it than be in it. Because that's what this is. <laughs> you agree too. Okay, George? Too much whining and uh, not enough action. <laughs> too much whining and not enough dining? That's, that's a good line, you guys. Seriously, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spontaneously repeat it again. Too much whining and not enough dining? It was spontaneous the first time. Um, well, so what's so you're describing an arc. I said that you guys should look for an arc. What's the arc? What's the up and down? What happens if you were to do the backstory or make the movie? I read the spark notes too. That was bad. They were probably wrong. Well, no, just like yes. What do you mean no? Yes, they probably are. Well, it said that Stella was a real person. Yeah, that part is right. And that <laughs> <laughs> so is Astrofell, by the way. Um, and that, that between lines, I think it was like. 30 and 32, she gets married to someone else. Between sonnets, 30. Sonnets. Wow. Sonnets. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's really fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then the rest Oh, of I'm in love with you. Oh, she got married as soon as I said that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And then he kisses her, and then, but, you know, then she's like, no, go away. She gets sick. He comes and sings under her window, and she's like, no, seriously, you need to leave me alone. You're a stalker. And then it ends. And then it ends. Well, that, so, yeah, not exactly. That's uh, really? that's trouble with spark notes, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, well, it depends what you mean by together. Um, There's some sort of mutual interest happening. Yes. There is some sort of mutual interest happening. Um, who thinks they have sex? Really? Everyone has sex. <laughs> okay, let me ask it this way. Who thinks they have sex with each other? <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, so who is Stella having sex with? Who? Anyone know his name? Do you, did you guess that, or did you look at the? Well, it might be in the footnotes, depend, depending on your edition. Yeah, um, there are a lot of puns on the word rich and how bad it is to be rich. <laughs> Rich being the name of the man that Stella is married to, so she her name is IRL. Her name is Penelope Rich, um, and so the idea of of richness and greed and so on those are puns that that um, whenever you see the word rich in the poem, it's a pun. I don't think it appears once without being a pun, um, and so his dislike of being rich is he dislikes rich himself for being rich and dislikes Penelope or Stella for being Penelope rich. Um, so yeah, they're married. Um, she's married to someone else. Um, what about him? What's he doing with his life? Does he want to be remembered as a poet? What does he say? Yeah, what does he say? He does say he doesn't. Do you remember how he puts it? <laughs> Don't call me no poet, he says. No. He says he doesn't want, um, he doesn't even want that he was a poet in his epitaph. When his, ep- when his epitaph is written, it shouldn't say that he's a poet. Um, why doesn't he want to be remembered as a poet? Do you remember, well, do you, do, does anyone have a sense? Yeah. Well, um, I'm not sure if this is the area you're talking about, but um, in Sonnet 45, um, he's talking about, he says, um, Don't think, my dear, that you and me can read of lovers ruin some sad tragedy. I am not I, pity the tale of me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so <laughs> I marked it because, funnily enough, I like this poem called Diving Into the Wreck. Um, I've got a tattoo Yes, me. yeah. Um, and there's a line where it you says... You should show people. Oh, i got a tattoo. Anyway, um, there's a line in Diving to the Wreck about uh, this is what I came for, the wreck and not the story of the wreck, that's the thing itself and not the myth. And so he's making, it really reminded me of that, he's making a really clear distinction between himself and her and Astrophil and Stella in some ways. He's like, I'm gonna, you know, like, if people read this, if you read this, there's a difference between what's going on between us and how I tell the tale of what's going on between us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you might be making it um, a more sincere and a less witty poem than it is, that one. Um, if, let's just look at 45. Um, did, did someone want to say something about it, about a more general thing or something about the poem itself? I saw a hand go up, but then... Oh, and no, I think 92 pertains to this. 90, 92. Not 92. 90 well, oh, I'm sorry, 90... <laughs> Wow, I can't articulate. 90 as well, yes. I think, reflects your question. Okay, well, let's, let's start at 45. Um, do you want to read it aloud, Leah? Uh, sure. <clears throat> Stella oft sees the very face of woe painted in my beclouded, stormy face, but cannot still to pity my disgrace, not though thereof the cause herself she know, yet hearing late a fable, which did show of lovers never known a grievous case. Pity thereof gat in her breast such place that from that sea derived tears spring did flow. Alas, if fancy drawn by imaged things, though false, yet with free scope more grace doth read than servant's rack, where new doubts honor brings. Then think, my dear, that you and me do read of lovers' ruin some sad tragedy. I am not I. Pity the tale of them. Okay, so paraphrase? <laughs> It's um, there. There's a vault after eight lines. These are. This is um, like many, although not all, the sonnets that Sidney writes, a Petrarchan one. Um, so, what happens first? Or what's the first thing that he notes? Yeah, George. She has no pity for him. And, uh -huh. uh, does, if he's miserable, she doesn't know why he is. Um, is it, does she not know? Well, yeah, she does know. Wait, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so Stella sometimes sees, sees woe itself in my face. Or in my face, you can see the picture of woe itself. Stella oft sees the very face of woe, very there um, having its root meaning of true, um, that, which is where our word very comes from. Um, Stella oft sees the very face <coughs> of woe painted in my beclouded, stormy face. Uh, what does that mean, beclouded and stormy? Like dark and brooding, maybe. Yeah, and maybe even weeping, going so far as to weep. That would be the stormy part. Dark and beclouded. Certainly upset. You mm -hmm. can, she can see that my face is upset. Um, one thing that tells you is that she sees him, that she has um, occasion to be interacting with him. Sometimes he sees her out of windows. Sometimes um, he's in a window. Especially later on, he sees her on the Thames from his window. 
um, sometimes he sees her in a window looking at him as when he's engaged in um, a tourney. And um, suddenly he notices that she's at her window watching him and he screws up, he gets self-conscious. Um, but sometimes they interact face to face. So here's a poem which indicates that they're interacting face to face. What Sydney, Sydney um, is not the most beloved poet ever, um, but he is one of the, are you, are you um, objecting to that characterization? Do you love him? Yeah, no, I think that's right, but I think, I, so let me try to put it this way. A lot of the poems are not the kind of poems that um, when you're very upset, which is one um, criterion for what makes a great poem a poem, is, is it what you want to read or is it what you want to quote or is it what you want to say? Um, in situations of great emotional um, intensity. And there's not that much in Sydney, I don't think, I'm seeing if you're looking skeptical, there's not that much in Sydney, I don't think, um, where you feel, yes, that nails exactly how I feel. Um, but Sydney as a character, and I don't mean, oh man, what a character. I mean that um, Sydney as a figure whom you kind of um, get a sense of from his poetry as well as from his biography. Um, Sydney, <coughs> Sydney's death is a staple of um, anecdotes of noble action. He was um, in um, a battle. He was wounded in a battle in the Netherlands, and um, there was he was wounded with a common soldier who was right next to him, and someone came to bring him water. Um, and uh, the common soldier said, yes, take this water, and he said, no, thou hast more need of it than I. Um, and the claim of the anecdote, so the way we understand it is, had he drunk the water, he might have survived, but he didn't and died. Um, and so that becomes known as the Sir Philip, Sir Philip Sidney thing to do. Um, even that's in poetry. Even that's in poetry. Okay. That was, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it's um, Raymond Chandler named Philip Marlowe. Everyone know who Philip Marlowe is? Um, the, the Raymond Chandler hard-boiled detective um, is a combination of Philip Sidney and Christopher Marlowe. That's where he got the name. Um, and there is a point where Chandler himself said that Marlowe, um, in the big sleep, decided he, what he, on the one hand, he didn't want to betray Carmen. On the other hand, he didn't want to do the Sir Philip Sidney thing and die for someone. Um, he, who he shouldn't be dying for. So that's the Sir Philip Sidney thing. Use it in conversation, people will be impressed. Um, but yeah, he's, a, he's in sort of um, standard anecdote and as a figure um, in, in the poems that he writes, he's incredibly appealing. And Astrophel and Stella, I think he comes off um, if you don't have to force yourself to read it the three hours before class because you were doing other things over your vacation, he comes off as, as um, incredibly appealing as well. Um, and part of what that is due to is the extent to which Astrophil and Stella really is a kind of novel in sonnets. Um, it's not as Shakespeare's sonnets are, as Spencer's sonnets are, as um, Petrarch's are, as Wyatt's and Sari's are. Um, it's not a series of sonnets in which 
we're actually just getting a kind of day-to-day -day graph of how um, the sonneteer is feeling. The sonnets are in an extremely carefully um, considered order, and he wants you to figure out the story. Um, it's a first-person um, it's a first-person novel where where the story is implicit or largely implicit, but um, anything you need to know to understand what's happening you will know, you can figure out from the sonnets. And so one of the things, just as an example, one of the things that we find out here is, is and not only here, but um, that this sonnet gives evidence of, is that they are interacting face to face. They are more or less social peers. Um, and it's court. And we know from Wyatt what court is like, what court life is like. This is a more sophisticated and wider ranging court. It's Queen Elizabeth's court and it's 50 or 60 years after Wyatt um, that this stuff is happening and, and England is a much more sophisticated country or it's got a more sophisticated court culture. Um, but it's still um, court life. So if you look, just we'll go back to 45 in a second, but just to see one of the things that um, one of the most famous sonnets and one of the ones that um, tell you something about what this life is like is Sonnet 30. Is it Sonnet 30? No, it's Sonnet 31. Um, and then we'll get back to 45, but with how sad steps, O moon, Thou climbs the skies, how silently and with how wan a face. Um, there's several sonnets where he addresses the heavens, where um, night is in love with the moon, for example, or the sun goes, goes fleeing away from um, the rise of the moon. The moon we know and have already had occasion to notice is the goddess of chastity. Um, yeah? Should we also assume that they are also like human players because <clears throat> Astrophil and Stella are Stella's yeah. star of their people, so like, is the moon a character? No, okay. no. Um, that is that what we should assume is that the reason um, he names himself Astrophel and her Stella is because um, the idea of um, astronomical interaction and also the fact that such interaction is always cyclical is something that um, he's that that this makes more available. It makes it makes a certain um, um, matrix of imagery or a, cer a certain template of imagery um, uh, easier to to use. Um, so there's actually just so you know, there's a Wordsworth poem that begins um, with the same first two lines. Wordsworth rewrote this sonnet um, as an experiment. Um, and it's a really great Wordsworth poem, too. Um, Without how sad steps, O moon, thou climbs the skies. Um, everyone knows that climbs there is second person singular. Um, that's something you actually need to know for reading 17th century and earlier poetry. You actually do need to know how to decline um, verbs. I mean, how to conjugate verbs in English, which most, most people don't. Um, but the th ending, like seeth, heareth, doth, and so on, that's always third person singular. So when you see some kind of parody where where um, Peter on Family Guy says something like, "Methinks thou doth not know what I mean," that's 
agrammatical. It's great in every other way, but it's agrammatical. Doth is always third person. He, she, it, doth. Um, the second person is what? Thou dost, D-O-S-T. So S-T is a second person singular ending. Thou dost, thou climbst, etc. Um, that's just something that will make your life marginally easier, but maybe at a moment when it will count, to know that um, the third person singular, the TH is the third person singular. It's not the only one. Sometimes it's S, um, the way it is for us now. But he hath or he has. Um, and those are actually, TH slides very easily into S in linguistic history, and they sometimes slide back and forth. Um, TH is a lisp S, S is a smoothed out TH. If you feel your tongue, uh, your tongue is doing a similar thing when you say th and suh. Um, it's just slightly different relation to your teeth. I mean teeth. Um, <laughs> so doth is third person singular, hath, etc. st is um, second person singular. Um, and that will sometimes help you to understand a line that might otherwise seem ambiguous. So with how sad steps of moon thou climbst, that is the moon is climbing. It's obvious here, but I just wanted you to know. Thou climbst the skies, how silently and with how wan a face. So he sees moonrise, and he has this beautiful, beautiful image of moonrise, um, that the moon is silent and her face is wan. What does wan mean there? What is it? Pale. Pale, yeah. What? May it be that even in heavenly place that busy archer his sharp arrows tries? So what's he explaining? Why does, what's the relation of lines three and four to lines one and two? Yeah. The moon's pale because of love, because Cupid's even in heaven shooting his arrows. Exactly. So look at you. You look like me, is what he's basically saying. Um, are you too? Have you too? fallen in love and are you too also not finding reciprocation? Sure, if that long with love acquainted eyes can judge of love, thou feelst a lover's case. I read it in thy looks. So who has the long with love acquainted eyes? He does, yeah. That's almost a Germanism. Um, that is a long adjectival phrase um, that's very common in German, you probably know. Um, it's hard to do in English, but Sydney does it. Um, sure, if that long with love acquainted eyes can judge of love, thou feelst a lover's case. I read it in thy looks. <clears throat> thy languished grace to me that feel the like thy state descries. So your state shows, um, gives evidence of, makes palpable or makes clear your language, the fact that your grace has languished, that, that, it's, that it's fading, that, it's, um, that something is wrong, that it's sickly. I know that because I feel the like. Um, so he's projecting, and this is a poem about projection. I look at the, you know, the moon is a kind of Rorschach moon. I look at the moon, and what it reminds me of is a sad lover who isn't being treated well. And then he makes friends with the moon. And this is the Volta, this is the turn. Um, then even a fellowship, O moon, tell me, given that we're so parallel, that we are fellows, then even a fellowship, O moon, tell me, 
Is constant loved, love deemed there, but want of wit? So, what's he saying about the constant love he is showing? Yeah. Is it also stupid in heaven to be to to love only one person or to only want to love one person? Yeah. Or do people in heaven call you stupid for doing it? Yeah. Um, so is uh, that's the word deemed? Is that how it's descri- is that how it's judged in heaven? as um, witlessness. Um, so what that tells us is that's, how, that's what it's deemed here, is deemed want of wit. Are beauties there as proud as here they be? So which beauty is he talking about with that plural? Stella. Stella, yeah. Um, and remember, again, this is a sort of Wyatt-like move. They flee from me that sometime did me seek. But the plural is hiding the singular, and the singular here is Stella. Are beauties there as proud as here they be? Do they above love to be loved? And yet those lovers scorn whom that love doth possess. Um, so what's he saying about Stella here? Yeah. She likes the attention, but she doesn't like him. Yeah, or she likes the attention partly because it enables her to put him down. That is the the psychological um, um, economy here is that there are people who love to be loved because um, it gives them an opportunity to be cruel and to be cruel to someone who loves them. Um, love is for them an opportunity for cruelty is what this poem is saying. Do they above love to be loved and yet those lovers scorn whom that love doth possess? Do they call virtue there, ungratefulness? Um, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, Stellar is always calling on virtue to explain why she doesn't reciprocate. Mm-hmm. But it might not be that. It might be just ungratefulness. Yeah. Um, so. The point, what, what you, you have to see what the direct object is and what the predicate of the direct object is. Um, they call something something there. And in fact, what they do is they call ungratefulness by the name of virtue. It's not that they call virtue by the name of ungratefulness. They call ungratefulness by the name of virtue. Um, nothing in the grammar tells you it has to be that way, but the meaning of the poem um, can only have that meaning. Um, if there's an ambiguity there, there might be some interest um, in the ambiguity, but it's but not an interest that we should pursue right at this minute. Um, okay, so that's a poem about intense sadness, that there's no reciprocity here. It comes um, fairly early in the sequence. Um, by the time we get to 45, um, we get another version in which, again, she's not, she doesn't seem to care about how he feels, although by the time you get to 45, she doesn't seem to take pleasure in his feeling bad. So we have, again, to read it again, Stella oft sees the very face of woe painted in my beclouded stormy face. Notice, by the way, how often Sidney likes to um, use the same word within a line and then as a rhyme. So we already saw, do those above love to be loved and yet? 
um, and then he'll rhyme on the word love. Here we get, Stella oft sees the very face of woe painted in my beclouded stormy face, but cannot skill to pity my disgrace, not though thereof the cause herself she know. That is, not though she knows herself to be the cause of it. Um, so uh, what does skill mean there? The ability. To The ability. Um, also, it's got a sense which we don't quite have any more of willingness. Um, it's of no use, or it's no, um, she won't make the effort. Um, so it's not simply, oh, I would if I could. It's, there's no particular desire to. Do, does anyone have a note on the word skill in their edition? No, okay. It just says cannot skill is not able. Yeah, that's not, qu yeah, that, that's almost but not quite right. I mean, that's almost but not all of it. Um, yet, hearing late a fable, which did show of lovers never known a grievous case, pity thereof, thereof got in her breast such place that from the sea, from that sea derived, tears spring did flow. So what happened? Backstory? If you're, if you're doing the, if this is the voiceover, what are you seeing in the movie? Yeah. Trying or like trying to hide what actually happened, or if it literally means that she heard a story about a lover in a similar situation, and she felt sorry for that, like fake man. Yeah. Um, and then he got really hopeful that maybe like, well, if she can protect, if she can actually be sorry for this guy, maybe she can actually be sorry for me. Sorry. Um, or she should be able to. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, literally is how to read it. Um, there may be more than the literal reading, but it seems that they went to a play or they heard someone read aloud from um, some book of fiction um, or some storyteller um, came to court and told stories or someone sang um, some story, you know, maybe Marlowe showed up and sang Hero and Leander. Um, but it's that sort of thing. It was, it was some entertainment. Um, that's something that Sidney was obsessed with. Um, Sidney wrote um, an apology for poesy. Sidney, um, there's been a debate since Plato as to whether literature um, is bad for you or not. Um, it's a debate that still continues. Um, well, right now it probably continues about Beavis and Butthead and Family Guy. Um, but it's a debate that's gone on um, for at least 3,000 years, that if you get involved and if you care about fiction, um, when there's reality that you should be caring about, um, isn't that actually taking you away from a world where um, you're being useful? Isn't that co-opting your um, fellow feeling, your moral feelings for other people and focusing those moral feelings on fictional characters. Isn't that a bad thing? So Plato said it was a bad thing. Um, many, lots of people have said it's bad things. Um, it's these days pretty much, not by me, but, but it's the um, majority view among literary theorists that it's a bad thing, that if you ever hear people um, castigating the sentimental novel um, the idea would be, you know, you really feel sorry for Pip or Oliver Twist or, um, you know, Tiny Tim, um, and um, your eyes are full of tears at what happens to these fictional characters, but in the meantime, horrible things are happening everywhere, um, and you're paying no attention. And the standard argument will be people feel good for feeling so feel good about themselves. 
for feeling sorry about fictional characters. And because they feel good about themselves, they don't actually do anything to make the world a better place. It's enough to feel good about yourself. Um, so that's one argument. Sidney wrote against that idea. Um, but he does tell a famous story from Plutarch of a tyrant who would um, go to the theater and weep at the death of innocent people in plays. That is, he'd see a play and it would be a tragedy and there would be a tragic outcome for Antigone or whoever. Um, and this is what he did in the evenings after he spent all day um, writing execution orders for his enemies, um, um, having them beheaded or crucified or whatever. Then go see a play and say, oh, it's so sad, and then go to work the next day and kill some more people. Um, so that's something that Sidney was fascinated by, which is people feeling morally committed to, um, feeling empathy and sympathy for fictional people, but in real life, um, not showing that kind of sympathy and empathy to real people. So here, this is a minor version of this, but what he's saying is, yeah, so here are some lovers who were never known, and um, things were bad. These weren't real people, but things were bad, and she felt so much pity for them that she started weeping. Um, hearing or watching this play. Um, but when she looks at me, she's just cold and cruel. Um, now again, backstory-wise, you can say that they seem to be on, on much better social terms than they were in Sonnet 30. That is, they're now going to plays together or going to um, narrative entertainments of whatever sort. They are, they, are, they are together. I don't mean that it's just the two of them going. They're not on a date. It's just they're moving in the same social circles. There's, you know, it's, it's um, narrative evening in the court of Queen Elizabeth, so they all go. Um, and they hang around and watch. Um, and he sees her weeping. Um, and he says, look at that. Alas, if fancy, drawn by imaged things, though false, yet with free scope, more grace doth breed than servants rack, where new doubts honor brings. So if this is true, that her fancy is drawn by imaged things even though they're false, um, fancy has free scope to, to um, feel however it wants. And that seems to breed more grace in Stella than the wreckage of her servant, than the shipwreck that her servant, that I am undergoing. Um, where honor brings new doubts all the time. The fact that she doesn't have free scope, that I don't have free scope, makes everything doubtful. Um, if that's true, then think, my dear, if you would prefer to do it this way, if what will get you to care about someone, then try it this way, Stella. Think, my dear, that you and me to read of lovers ruin some sad tragedy. Think that I'm a fictional character. And then, maybe, if you don't think, oh, it's him, Asterfell, but if it's a fictional character, um, then you would pity me, and that would be great. I, that would make me happy. Pity the tale of me. Um, I think that, for those of you who know Shakespeare, um, there's a lot, Sidney was, a, was um, not quite as big an influence on Shakespeare as Spencer was, but was a very big influence on Shakespeare. If you know King Lear, uh, the subplot in King Lear, that is the Edmund Edgar plot, is taken from Sidney's uh, romance 
Um, Arcadia, um, that's a story from Arcadia, which Shakespeare retells about the um, two half-brothers and their father and how one um, manages to um, discredit the other. Um, and it's a, it's a horrifying story in Sydney, and Shakespeare just takes it and weaves it in, weaves a version of that story into King Lear. Um, this idea, pity the tale of me, I think, can you think of a Shakespeare play where that comes up? Those of you who know Shakespeare? She loved me for the dangers I had run, and I loved her that she did pity them. Othello, Othello yeah. Um, I also think there's, um, anyone notice the word surcease in their reading? Anyone know where that word comes from in Shakespeare? Mm, not that I remember. I won't say no, but not that I remember. But um, if, the if the assassination could trammel up the cause and catch with his surcease, success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here. Yeah. No? No, it's if we murder the king and get success just by doing that so that as soon as he stops existing, everything will be fine here. Then we jump the life to come. He, yeah, here upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. Yeah, it's Macbeth. Um, and I'm pretty sure Shakespeare was reading Astrophel and Stella, um, had it in mind when he wrote. I mean, I don't think he meant to say, oh, everyone will see that I'm getting this from Astrophel and Stella. It wasn't tip of the hat. It's that, like everyone else, Shakespeare's vocabulary is various parts of his vocabulary are lighting up, are lit up by whatever he's reading at the time. Um, that he's writing something, and I think there's so much echoing in, of Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra in Astrophel and Stella, um, which he wrote at the same time. He was writing the Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra simultaneously, um, and it seems pretty clear to me, my reconstruction of this, um, is that to write Antony and Cleopatra, he was reading Astrophel and Stella as um, uh, just reading intense love stories. Um, and But he was also writing Macbeth at the same time, and so it influenced, so the vocabulary of Astrophel and Stella influenced both plays. Um, so, um, but yeah, you can maybe hear some of Othello there. That is, so think of me as a fictional character. Um, and then if you feel so much sadness for people who don't even exist, I'm willing for you to think of me as that kind of a character so you feel that way about me is what he's saying. Um, but notice this is considerably less bitter than Sonnet 30. Um, let's go to the very start. Um, Those were the best. Well, sort of. <laughs> she said carefully. <laughs> why, did I... um, why did you like them best? Um, I guess it's not like I like the, the best. I think that there were certain sonnets that were very, very good, but they were sort of overwhelmed by the sheer amount of other sonnets that were good but not great. And I uh. thought the first two were very good, so I enjoyed the beginning. Um, all right, sorry, I'm just trying to get to. I have to get an iPod too, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, an iPad too. Come on. Um, someone read Sonnet 1 while I get to it. 
let's see, I'm going to call him Lauren. Just like that. <laughs> Loving the truth and fading most my love to show that she, dear she, might take some pleasure of my pain. Pleasure might cause her read, reading might make her know. Knowledge might pity win and pity grace her too. I sought fit words to paint the lack of taste of love. Studying inventions fine, her wit to entertain. Oft turning others' knees to the expensive. Some fresh and fruitful showers upon my sunburnt brain. But words came halting forth, halting invention's stay. Invention, nature's child, blood step being sudden flows. And others' feet still seem to have strangers in my way. Thus great with child to speak, and helpless in my prose. Biting my truant pen, beating myself for spite. Fools of my muse to looking my heart and my Great. Um, one thing to notice, do you notice the lines are long? Yeah, they're hexameters. They're Alexandrines. There are a few hexameter sonnets in here, um, which is French style, um, although in French you wouldn't have the iambic beat. Um, and this is one of them. Um, they, they seem a little bit more formal when they're in hexameters. They're not, they don't feel quite as natural in English. As um, pentameter, as most of the sonnets do, as pentameter sonnets do. Um, so, were, was your hand up, Leah? Um, okay. So, what do we think of this? All right. So, here's the first question about fiction. Okay, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I, when I was reading it, I highlighted like a couple lines, and one of the ones that caught my eye was that he admitted that he was trying to read other people's works to try and see if he could write something. Uh-huh. Which is, I, I'm, maybe I'm just not familiar with it, but I, I don't remember reading another poem where someone like blatantly says that like, I'm trying to read other people to get inspiration. Like, I, I just thought that was really interesting, especially because he was trying to like write this to get her attention. Yeah. I wouldn't think that something that he would admit to was the fact that he was kind of trying to copyright someone else. Well, not, I mean not copyright, but like copying someone else. Uh-huh. Okay, good. Um, what if you saw that, though, as the uh, 1580s version of sending a musical card? <laughs> or just a Hallmark card, you know? Um, you are a true friend. Friends are hard to find. I'm with you till the end. You You're make, always on my mind. What? You're always on my mind. <laughs> Um, missing you, all written in Hallmark script. Um, yeah. Well, um, I, wait, I don't understand what that means. This like, this, like this Hallmark card. Like, no, no, no. But no, I think what Gabrielle is saying is that there's something odd in this poem about his saying, um, "I wanted." So, I mean, just just uh, the the two line summary of the poem is, um, "I was in love with you, and I wanted to, and I I was." In love with you, I really wanted to be able to write poetry about how much I loved you. So I read a lot of other people's poetry looking for um, good ways of saying it to you, and it just kept not working. And then my muse said, just look in your heart and write. Um, so Gabrielle is, is intrigued by the fact that it takes till line 14 for him to realize that. Um, that's and, and the fact that he would like openly say that to her, like, like not even the fact that he did it, because like sometimes you get writer's block, so you do look at other things and see 
if something happens, but like the fact that he will openly say to someone that he's trying to impress that he was reading other people's like words to try and like tell her them. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Um, he also, it's just, um, he says, thus great with child to speak and helpless in my throes. It's, he's, he's literally like pregnant with feelings and uh -huh. they're choking him up. And yeah. like, he's, he's looking everywhere to see the story of them, which is funny because it links back up with what we were talking about later with, you know, she cries at a story that reminds Yeah, her. good. Exactly. And so, you know, he's like, I've been trying to find that story and I don't see it. So I guess I better write it. Yeah. So... Here's a question for you. There's the fiction of Astrophel and Stella, and this part really is cl clearly is fictional, is that it's written that what you have here is a day-by-day -day or whatever, sonnet-by-sonnet -sonnet record of what's happening between them. Um, but that's not true. That is to say, the sonnets are not in the order that they're written in. Um, and nor indeed could they be if the, if the sonnets were actually um, written out of genuine feeling. Um, this first sonnet, when do you think it was written with respect to the other 107 plus the songs? Yeah. This sounds a lot to me like it would have been written towards the end when he was trying to compile the entire book together. And he was thinking, like, how do I explain what this is, like how do I really start this story? So it, to me it doesn't, because it's too easy, like it, it's, it's too fitting. You well know, it contradicts easy. itself. I mean, that's exactly right. What he's saying is, you know, I, I just couldn't write formal poetry and I really tried and, you know, I tried to be really witty and to make everything fall into place and it just wasn't working. But look what he's saying. Um, Loving in truth and fain in verse, my love to show that she, dear she, might take some pleasure of my pain. And then we get these, and then dominoes would fall. She might take some pleasure of my pain. Pleasure might cause her read. Reading might make her know. Knowledge might pity win. And pity grace obtain. So it's A would cause B, and B would cause C, and C would cause D, and D would cause E. And that would all be good. Um, that's really well thought through. That's, a, that's known as a rhetorical scheme. That is that A will cause B, B will cause C, and so on. Um, and he's saying, you know, if only I could do that, but the words came halting forth, he says, with considerable eloquence. Um, that, um, but words came halting forth, wanting inventions stay. What does stay there mean? Anyone? Presence? No, it's, it's actually a literal image he's giving here. It's a staff, something to lean on. So my words came halting forth because I didn't have invention as a staff or, uh, or walking stick to lean on. Um, so I, I, I came limping forth and I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I didn't have the aid of invention. Um, that doesn't seem very halting. Um, invention here, invention means finding a good metaphor. Um, that's not the only thing it can mean, but it essentially means that, that to be inventive 
as a poet. I just wasn't inventive. I, words came halting forth because I just wasn't inventive. But he says that in a very inventive way. Words came halting forth, wanting invention stay. Invention, nature's child, fled stepdame studies blows. So invention, you know, there I was studying really hard and study, what does study do? Well, it's, um, it's a mean teacher. It, it um, punishes those who don't do well. And invention said, oh, no, I can't, I, I can't do what I want to do spontaneously when I'm being beaten by study. Um, and then, and others' feet still seemed but strangers in my way. So he's halting forth. Words came halting forth. Then turns out to mean the very thing that, as he said, that doesn't happen in poetry. Why don't words come halting forth in poetry? So the idea of halting here um, is a way of walking. We would say limping. Um, but um, I think we still talk about horses halting. Um, as, as a horse which is hobbled or injured or something. It, um, I, think, I think in um, dressage that's called halting. Um, it's a halting gait. Yeah, a halting gait. Um, so that means that um, it's the opposite of um, running feet, let's say. Um, so the word feet and others' feet still seem but strangers in my way. What does the word feet mean there? Yeah. No. Others, like, shoes didn't fit me. Like, I'm trying to use other people's words, and it didn't work for me. Well, it means he's tripping over. He's, he's in a crowded. So one thing it means is he's in a crowded. Um, if, if he goes where other poets have gone, he's on a crowded pathway, and he's tripping over their feet. Um, so it's not quite if the shoe fits wear it, but, um, but it's. Yeah, it's a pun about meter. Um, poetic feet. So others' feet means the um, poetry the iambic feet that others used. And they seemed, still seem but strangers in my way. Um, but notice just how wildly inventive this all is. Words came halting forth, wanting inventions stay. Um, so he's limping on his own feet. Um, and then there's others' feet, and he's tripping over those. And that's a really good way to describe um, poetic feet. But it's contradicting itself. It's, it's you know essentially saying, um, I find myself utterly and entirely speechless, unable to articulate a single feeling about the situation that you've left me in, but struck dumb. And on it, you know, it's that's essentially what he's saying. Yeah. It's kind of like some of the best advice I ever got at Brandeis is that once you write a paper, you should go back to your intro and rewrite your thesis to match the paper you actually wrote. Yeah. Um, Sonnet 2 feels like his first draft of his thesis, uh -huh. which is, you know, like, love gave the wound which while I breathe will bleed, I paint my hell. And then Sonnet 1 is like when he, after, after then he went back to the beginning and he, you know, yeah. sort of tacked on. Yeah, and no, notice that in Sonnet 2 you get the same um, A cause B cause C cause D structure. I saw and liked, I liked but loved not. I loved but straight did not what love decreed. At length did love's decrees I forced agreed, yet with repining it's a partial lot. Now even that footstep of lost liberty is gone, and now, like slave-born Muscovite, I call it praise to suffer tyranny. Um, slave-born Muscovite, because he's actually always interested in what's going on politically. He was a diplomat and um, um, a military, an important military advisor. Um, but also, there's a pun there. Do you know that Slav, our word slave actually comes from Slav? 
Um, so what happened was the word Slav actually means glory in Russian and in Slavic languages. They're the glorious people. But then when they were enslaved, that their name became the name for slaves. So the English language word slave is actually a corruption of the word Slav. Um, and this is sort of, you can see it happening in this poem. But notice again, what he's saying here is, in a sense, contradicts or maybe explains what happens in the first poem, which is, well, you know, he sort of was interested in her and sort of thought, okay, this is sort of cool. I like her. Well, maybe I love her. Um, but it's no big deal if I love her. Um, well, maybe it is a big deal, but I don't like the fact that it's a big deal. No, actually, it's just a new slave, whatever you want. Um, but even that, there's something retrospective about it. What you could, what, there's no place really in this sequence of poems where his description of how it came to be coincides with um, where the sequence would have really started, where he would have written the first poem. Um, and that's what makes it novelistic. That is that what he's doing is he's telling the story of Astrophel. Um, and to some extent, what we can say is what this, this sequence begins very conventionally. That is, if you want a, to be a poet of a certain sort in court, um, writing a certain kind of poetry, then it's important to um, be in love with someone unattainable. And that's, um, that's just courtly love. That's, that's an old idea. Um, and so you have to pick your unattainable person. Um, and it's very useful also if they're unattainable because then you can just concentrate on your poetry. Um, and you don't have to worry about um, the messiness of real life. And um, people will admire what a good poet you are. And it's also very useful if you're not actually in love with the person. Um, because if you are in love with the person, um, well, where are you seeing that? Well, see, because we're disagreeing about these first poems. I see them as cold um, and willful. Um, and it's only, I mean, you can say at the end of the second one, and now employ the remnant of my wit to make myself believe that all is well, while with a feeling skill I paint my hell. I also think the second one is not an early sonnet. I think the first two are actually very, very late. Um, that the first one is a general introduction to the whole sequence. And then the second one is also a late introduction, but one which he wants you to feel as as being the start. Um, but again, what he's saying is, um, what he's saying is I didn't feel love at first, but it came to me. And if you take the first two sonnets in a sense as describing the whole sequence, and I think it's helpful to do that, then what you'll see is that this is actually a sequence of poems in which despite himself, he falls in love with her. He picks someone to write love poetry to. And then he falls for her, which wasn't part of his plan. Um, it was his plan to do it at least in a controlled manner. 
Um, I really want to write these poems to her. I don't feel, as he says later on, I laughed at people who were actually found love painful. I thought that was really stupid. But look what's happened to me. Um, and I think that that what Sidney wants, so let's distinguish between Sidney and Asterfeld. What Sidney wanted to do was write a novel about a poet who falls in love, um, who is writing love poetry but not but doing it because he wants to be a poet. And in the course of writing this love poetry, which he's writing because he wants to be a poet and not because he's in love, he actually falls in love with the person that he's writing that poetry to. Um, if you were to talk about, I mean, again, let's talk a little bit about backstory. What are some of the things that, have ha that happen in the course of these sonnets and songs? Um, we know he kisses her. When does he kiss her? What's she doing when he kisses her? She's asleep. Um, so he finds her asleep, which means that they're on even more trusting or friendly terms than before. And so he kisses her. Um, what's her response? Isn't she, isn't she upset at him? Yeah. Yeah. WTF, essentially, <laughs> is her response. Um, but not that long. She doesn't stay upset. Um, but what are some of the things that happened before that? So he goes and moons around her, but she's more concerned with fictional stories. And he says, well, treat me as fictional. It's a good reason to write poetry. You can see there that there's some convergence or at least a partial overlap of what the poem is talking about, which is she really gets moved by literature about, about lovers for, who, who are kept from each other. Um, I'm writing this, these poems for her to read. And you can see that at least part of the idea then would be that the poems would move her um, because she actually is susceptible to literature. Um, you know, that's any of you who are writers or poets and who write love poetry, you will probably find that if you are moved to write love poetry um, and, if, and moved to write it in the sense of thinking that um, if only that person would see what I'm putting in this poetry, then the kind of person you like is the kind of person who likes poetry. Um, that, or at least you want them to be the kind of person who, who likes poetry. Um, and that's what's going on here. That is, you know, if you fall in love with um, someone who is really intent on being the next Zuckerberg, it's probably, you're not going to think that the poetry you're writing that person is what's going to be um, the thing that's going to get them to Facebook like you. Um, but um, if they're the right kind of person, one reason you might be attracted to them is that you're the kind of person who likes that kind of person. And the fact that she's moved by these plays or stories or whatever that she's watching or, or hearing told, um, that tells you something about her and also might tell you why um, he's actually falling for her. She turns out to like literature. That's a plus, maybe not one that he expected, um, but one that actually does make liking turn to love and love turn to desperate love and desperate love turn to love that um, stays serious. I mean, that, that likes the fact that it's desperate. Um, 
what else happens? What are some other events? I think we've done, there, there's some other fairly easy ones to figure out. Yeah. What, um, <clears throat> when in the sequence with that poem, or the, sorry, the sonnet about him jousting and like completely forgetting to go because he saw her? Um, yeah, um, I don't know. That's, I think that's. Because a, that sounds, to me, when I read it, it sounded like the stereotypical first encounter. Like, we locked eyes across the room and I completely forgot myself uh -huh. and embarrassed myself. But it didn't come very close to the beginning. Or no. Like, I thought that would be what he would lead in with and he didn't. Um, no, and it's it's clear that, um, well, I think, it, I think you're right to notice that it doesn't come early. I'm feeling that it's in the 20s, but I may be misremembering. Um, If someone sees it, um, the pun on the first pun on rich is in twenty four. By the way, rich fools there be whose base and filthy heart lies hatching still the goods wherein they flow. So, um, well, just since since we're since I'm paging through it, rich fools there be. So that's rich. Rich fools there be whose base and filthy heart lies hatching still the goods wherein they flow and damning their own selves to tantals smart, wealth breeding want, more rich, more wretched grow. So they're rich, but they don't know how to appreciate what they have. They just want more of it. And like tantalus, where, once we get the word tantalize, um, they never actually get the things that seem within reach. Yet to those fools, heaven such wit doth impart as what their hands do hold, their heads do know, and knowing love and loving lay apart as sacred things far from all dangers show. So even though they're fools, they know enough to be jealous of the things they own, to be really careful that nobody touches what they own, in this case what they own being Stella. Um, but that rich fool who by blind fortune's lot the richest gem of love and life enjoys and can with foul abuse such beauties blot, let him, deprived of sweet but unfelt joys, exiled for aye from, thy, from those high treasures which he knows not, grow in only folly rich. So rich fools turns into folly rich. Folly and fool, you know, have the same root. Um, a fool is someone afflicted with folly, someone afflicted with folly is a fool. So rich fools, he says, let him just be rich with folly, but not with Stella. He doesn't appreciate her, um, and um, he shouldn't. Um, but let's see. Um, did you find it? Yeah, um, the jousting is uh, 53. Yeah, so it is, it's... Um, Which is interesting because on, in 49, he compares his love to a horse. Yes. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. gets crappy at him. Yeah. Also, um, in 41, he's also jousting, but he wins in 41 because he's watching. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe that's the one I was thinking of. Um, oh, no, it's not the one I was thinking. Oh, it's not. It's 42. Um, yeah. So having this day my horse, my hand, my lance, guided so well that I obtained the prize, both by the judgment of the English eyes and of some scent from that sweet enemy, France. Horseman, my skill in horsemanship advance. Townfolk, my strength. A daintier judge applies his praise so sl to slate. 
from which good use doth rise. Some lucky wits imputed but to chance, others, because of both sides, I do take my blood from them who did excel in this. Think nature me a man of arms did make. How far they shot arise. So notice it's a metaphor. Um, it's typical of Sidney to use a metaphor to describe what's to describe the metaphors that are being used about him. Um, so they missed. Lucky wits saw, thought that it was all fortune. Um, and that is, they were fortunate to guess right that it was luck. They were lucky in guessing right that it was just luck that I won. But this is, in fact, all wrong. The true cause is Stella looked on and from her heavenly face sent forth the beams which made so fair my race. And then, um, which one is it? 54, did you say? 53. 53. Um, Yeah, in martial sports I had my cunning tried, and yet to break more staves did me address, while with the people's shouts I must confess youth, luck, again, and praise, e'en filled my veins with pride, when Cupid, having me his slave, descried in Mars's livery prancing in the press. What now, sir fool, said he, I would no less. Look here, I say. So Cupid wants, um, wants Astrophel to um, prance in his li livery and not Mars's. Um, and so Cupid defeats him. Um, look here, I say, I looked, and Stella spied, who hard by made a window sent forth light. My heart then quaked, then dazzled were mine eyes. One hand forgot to rule, the other to fight. Nor trumpet sound I heard, nor friendly cries. My foe came on and beat the air for me, till that her blush taught me my shame to see. Um, so, but that, but that's a good moment for him. You're right, that is the sort of look across the room moment. But it's not the first one. Um, but it's a moment where she's blushing for him. So one of the things you can see happening in the course of these sonnets is that Stella becomes real. Um, that is, she goes from being this married woman who he gets to write sonnets to because there's going to be no, um, cost to that. Um, it's just the perfect situation, the courtly love situation. Um, love and virtue. Um, love that's not going to be spoiled by actually getting to know the person you love. Um, she actually be she becomes more and more real in the course of these sonnets. And in becoming more and more real, um, she does more and more. And he somehow um, falls more in love with her for a while because of that, uh, more in love with her than he'd been because of that. But it's really worth seeing how well Sidney now, not Astrophel, but how well Sidney um, does the exposition of Stella's becoming real. It's worth noticing when she first says anything in the sonnets. When, when are her first words? What are her first words in the sonnets? Does anyone remember? Wait, so is Sydney falling more and more in love with her, or is Astrophel? Astrophel. Sydney is creating the character of Astrophel, who is based on him. I mean, she's real, and Stella is based on a real person, Penelope Rich. Astrophel is based on a real person, Sir Philip Sydney. Astrophel. But, but is Sydney really in love with her? Is Sydney himself really in love with her? Biographically, the, the thought is yes, okay. but this is all when it's all over. Um, so there's a certain, look, there's a certain kind of story, which is, it's a really neat, hard to do, but really neat kind of story. Um, 
where the person who's actually responsible for a breakup, the person who wants the breakup to occur, um, writes the story as though it's the other person who wanted the breakup to occur. And those stories work. They're rare, but they're but it is a genre. Um, those stories work when the person who is trying to break up with the other person um, arranges things so that the other person is the one who asks for the breakup. Um, and so they don't have to take responsibility for it. Astrophil and Stella is that story. Um, and it's he falls in love with her. Um, he, Astrophel, falls in love with Stella. Um, but Stella also falls in love with him. And um, he has a responsibility because he's the one who can say, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, when he didn't. And he also did, but then he does fall in love with her, which she kind of cottons to. She doesn't really let herself fall in love with him until he's genuinely in love with her, not simply saying, you are the target of my courtly love poems. Um, but then, as happens all too frequently, um, he, what he liked was a little bit was her unattainability. And now that she's not so unattainable, he's not so sure he loves her anymore. Um, but he won't quite admit that to himself because that would make him a bad person. Um, but if he can get her to throw him over, then he, he gets everything he wants, which is that he gets no longer to be in love with her, but to say that he was in love with her and loyal all the way through, um, and to write these poems and to write poems in which the poetry was successful because she fell for him um, until she started disdaining him again. Now, I think Sidney had something like that experience with Penelope Rich. Um, and then I think Sidney wrote a not quite appealing narrator who doesn't have quite the same insight into himself that Sidney does. Sidney's insight into this is in the arrangement of the poems. Sidney writes a character who doesn't know himself as well as Sidney wants us to know him, doesn't get what he's revealing about himself, but Sidney wants to reveal that about him. Now, I think he does it after the fact. That is, again, it'll be a standard thing that someone will write a story about um, an amorous experience that they had when they were younger. Um, you know, it's, it's just standard. If, if you talk to most people, they will talk about um, how, how they were broken up with. Very few people will say, and then I broke up with this person, and that was good. Um, you know, if, if people were always telling the truth, um, you would be surprised that anyone ever broke up with anyone. Um, because no one wants to break up, and yet, there's always at least one person who does in a breakup. Um, so there's a sense in which Sidney knows and is really intelligently and with a huge deal of self-knowledge telling a story about a character who is like him when younger, when somewhat younger, um, about a character who got more involved than he understood being involved would be. He didn't really understand what, what really having love reciprocated would be like.
Um, he wanted to be the lovelorn poet. And then he became a poet um, where real love happened on both sides. And after all, that became too much for him. And um, so he went back or pressed her back into an earlier dynamic, which is the lovelorn poet dynamic. Um, and having pressed her back into that dynamic, he could then say, see, she's still cruel and nothing will ever happen. Um, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life thinking Stella, 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 um, the end. But that was a much easier and more convenient place for him to be. Astro, for Astrophel to be. And Sidney understands that about Astrophel or about his earlier self or about this literary character or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's, I think it's, it's a pretty extraordinary thing. But again, just to see, to, to see the um, stages in this, what are some of the other things that happen? I know not, you, have, you guys haven't all finished it. Um, but there's some pretty uh, strong stuff that happens towards the end. But what are some of the other things that you that you remember happening? Yeah, that's towards the end. Um, well, also you're going to be heard. Um, it's this is dangerous. Um, so that's near the end, and that's um, kind of a reason for him. Um, to say, well, if she's going to say that to me. Um, what else does she do? She gets sick. She gets sick, yeah. Um, and he's all concerned about that. Um, but the fact that she's sick also means that he's kept away from her. Um, so that also happens near the very end. And being kept away from her is something that is a little bit of an excuse to stay away from her. That's what Strep will do. Um, it's a little bit of an excuse to stay away from her. You can read those sonnets as um, not nearly as concerned about her as you would think. Not nearly as concerned about her as they would have been if they'd been early on. It's, oh no, Stella's sick. Look, she's so beautiful when she's sick. That's kind of interesting that she's beautiful when she's sick. But not, oh no, Stella's sick. What if she dies? What will I do? None of that. Um, there's no real fear the way there would be, would have been early on in the sequence, the way there would be if he was either thought he should be in love with her or really was in love with her. So what we, I mean, let, let's just say that the basic three movements are three um, different motifs of the sequence is in part one, there's a lot more than this, but we can at least do a first tripartite division like this, that in part one he thinks he should be in love with her and um, he uses very strong and inventive and clever and resourceful poetic language to describe um, court, feelings of courtly love. And that's something that, um, you know, poets, you want to be a poet, fall in love with someone, then you can write poetry. And that's, so that's what he does. Then in part two, he really is in love with her. And then in part three, He's still supposed to be in love with her, but he isn't. And unlike in part one, he's not writing poems in which, because he's supposed to be in love with her, he's going to write these really strong courtly poems. But rather, he's writing poems which are much more clearly um, the minimum if she's sick. 
okay, then I can describe, you know, what the, what she looked like when she was going down the Thames or how the whiteness of her face and the redness of her lips, um, that even though she's sick, beauty couldn't, um, her beauty was all the more intense. And um, that's a relief. I got that poem written. Um, but they don't feel um, concerned. And so it's, it's worth... Um, just getting a sense of how convincing his concern about her and um, about how she feels is in the course of the poem. So, so that's another thing that happens. What else happens? Suddenly he starts writing songs. <laughs> okay, yeah, suddenly he starts writing songs. I think that's a great thing. That's a, that's a moment, um, even though some of you thought they shouldn't be there, um, I would say that when he starts writing songs, that they're totally unexpected. And it's as though at that moment, he's, he really is being spontaneous. Instead of writing sonnets, suddenly there's the, do you remember the refrain of the first song? It's to you, to you, all song of praises do. It's like, whoa, wait, I'm not gonna write a sonnet today. It's like, God, she's great. I'm just gonna write this song about her. To you, to you, all song of praise is due. And you, my song, has what, what is it, has its beginning and takes its ending. Yeah. So where does the sonnet to the sparrow fit in? Um, <laughs> that's a mode, and you should um, think again of Philip Sparrow, um, the skeleton poem. Um, and it's actually a mode, it's an, it's an imitation of Catullus. Do people know about Catullus's poems to... Um, to Lesbia Sparrow. Um, so Catullus was in love with this woman named Lesbia, and he has a couple of poems about how her sparrow, which is like just the size of the thing that he's interested in in himself or wishes that she were interested in in him, gets to go everywhere that he would like his own um, sparrow-like thing to go. Um, and um, those are, those are sort of famous poems about how birds get to do what I'm not allowed to do. Um, and um, it's a playful one. But, sorry? Wizard of Oz, sort of. Like when Dorothy, when birds fly with her, like, she's talking about yeah. if she wants to run away and like, well, birds can do it, why can't I do it? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, but. Where does he think the sparrow is going? Like, <laughs> well, he says the sparrow goes between her breasts. He says, you know, look at that. It gets to sleep between your breasts. That seems pretty cool. Um, yeah. He also does um, a similar thing in the sonnet with her dog. Yeah. Saying, like, oh, your dog gets to kiss your face. Why can't I? Yeah. Why, oh, that's what you mean. Why, oh, why can't I? Dogs lie right in your lap. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of, like, in Forgetting Sarah Marshall when Peter starts writing a song about how he sucks. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like he sits down to write his love song to Sella that day, and then suddenly he's just, like, pouring out all of this vitriol and bile. Yeah, well, but that's because she's been angry about the kiss. So, so um, he has to deal with the fact that he got the kiss that he wanted, um, that he didn't take more advantage of her as he might have tried to do. She might be pissed at that. Um... He's not quite sure what's going on, um, and but she's certainly not happy with him now. Um, and it's um, there's a really interesting interaction of loneliness and and um, 
um, failed mutuality um, that he's responsible for and that he sometimes wants to hold her responsible for. Um, okay, so finish it. I would page through it again. Um, one thing to notice is there are a bunch of sonnets about desire, um, which are sonnets 80 plus or, plus or minus one or two. Um, and those are, are certainly worth looking at too. But just, you know, it's worth noticing the change in his humor. Sometimes he's really good humored, like in the sonnet about the sparrow. Um, and sometimes he's in a really vile humor. Um, sometimes he's just rejoicing in his own cleverness because they're both liking it, you can guess. And sometimes um, he's very lonely. Um, but stuff keeps happening. So only Sydney for Wednesday still? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so just finish. Since you're almost finished, finish.